I had symptoms of optic neuritis and six weeks later, I was diagnosed. So it was a very, very quick diagnosis. It was shocking. It was stunning. But of course, when I presented with the optic neuritis, I was told there's a 50% chance you have MS. But by the time that six weeks came around, I knew that it was MS because I had enough other symptoms, even just six weeks later. And I, I did, like as much as I bawled my eyes out and freaked out at the first appointment, like the first very shocking moment when I was told it was possibly MS. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Thriving Over Surviving podcast, where we discuss the ups and downs of our autoimmune diagnoses, but ultimately how we thrive in spite of it. I'm your host, Edie Sahesian. I was diagnosed in 2015 with multiple sclerosis. I've learned a lot about MS in myself over the past few years, but the most important thing I realize is that I am going to live my best life. And that is what thriving means to me. MS and other autoimmune diseases tend to be a bit of a bummer if we let them. So why not battle back by finding our joy? Stigmas around disability exist and persist, but my guest today is trying to change all that. Ardra Shepard is non-apologetic. This courageous advocate for those in this community and all those who use mobility aids shares her journey of thriving despite her diagnosis 20 years ago. Let's chat it up with Ardra. there. I'd like to welcome my guest, Ardra, to the show. Hi, welcome to Thriving Over Surviving. Hi, Edie. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. I found you on Instagram, actually, as I've been just trying to be out in the social world a little bit more. So it was great to stumble across your page. Would you share with us a little bit of either your diagnosis story or something from that story that really stands out to you even today? I think a lot of us remember the day we were diagnosed as sort of a dividing line, right? Like a before and after. So um, for me, that was 20 years ago. Uh, But yeah, that day just stands out to me in kind of photographic memory almost of, you know, I, 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 when I'm talking to physicians, doctors about, um, like neurologists about how they convey a diagnosis to patients. I always say, you know, there's something you're going to say that day that is going to be replayed over and over again in the heads of your patients. So it's, it's really important how the message is, is delivered. It's a, it's a dramatic day. That's for sure. I can remember my day. I actually told the doctor what was wrong with me, right? Because I, at that point, I had ruled out pretty much anything else that it could possibly be. And I just looked at him and said, I have multiple sclerosis, but I need you to tell me. (laughs) Wow. For me, it was like I had uh, symptoms of optic neuritis. And uh, six weeks later, I was diagnosed. 
so it was a very, very quick diagnosis. It was shocking. It was stunning. Um, but of course, when I presented with the optic neuritis, I was told there's a 50% chance you have MS. But by the time that six weeks came around, I knew that it was MS because I had enough other symptoms, even just six weeks later. And I, I did, like as much as I bawled my eyes out and freaked out at the first appointment, like the first very shocking moment when I was told it was possibly MS, at the actual appointment where I was diagnosed, you know, I was cracking jokes with the doctor because even at that stage in my life with MS, there was like some part of me that realized that like part of the burden of this disease is to make other people feel okay about it. Even my doctor, you know, like I knew he had to give me this shitty news and I was like, you know, just trying to like make the whole room more comfortable. That is the case though, isn't it? Yeah. Like you, it's almost like you're apologizing for something you can't control in a way. Yeah. It's, it's a weird thing. Yeah, for sure. As people have brought that to my attention, I'm noticing it about myself. I think I had just been doing it innately and not recognizing it. Yeah, so. it's it's not a conscious thing, right? It's just on some level, we know that this is bad news. We don't, you know, and actually I, I do remember as part of my diagnosis story, you know, I was very, very young, asking my mom to call all my friends and tell them because it wasn't that I couldn't bear to say the words, I have MS. It was that I couldn't deal with their reactions. Like I wasn't ready to make my friends feel better about the fact that I had MS, you know? Like I didn't need to see the look on their faces of whatever that was. Like I didn't, I was processing my own stuff. I couldn't deal with the emotions of anyone else. Yeah, and at that point when you're just telling people and they don't even know what MS is, you're having to reiterate that story over and over again. So, but how many people I'm sure that are listening have said, have told someone, you know, or somebody said like, what's wrong with you? Or they've said, Oh, I have MS. And the answer is, Oh, I'm so sorry. And then how many people with MS have said, Oh, that it's okay. You know what I mean? Like it's, like, that's an example of like trying to make other people feel comfortable and just having to deal with the reaction of someone else. When we're talking about multiple sclerosis, for you and your experience, what's been the thing that you know is true and that you found out, but that really nobody, people don't talk about it? I mean, there's still a lot of stigma around disability and illness, and that makes it very hard for people to talk about. My Instagram, where you found me, is really, I started that channel as a support for my blog. I started writing it almost six years ago, and I thought, what can I say about MS that hasn't been said yet? And if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna do this, then I need to do it in a meaningful way. I need to prove to myself that I can tell the whole unvarnished truth and be really authentic about it. So one of the first posts I wrote was called, Honey, I Peed the Bed. And, um, you know, we do, there are uh, much more transparent bloggers and people on social media telling like the real deal now, but I'll tell you like six years ago, it wasn't like that. So it was very vulnerable for me and very scary, but I was like, yep, I can do this. I can write about the reality of it. And I think 
even back six years ago, what we heard from a lot of people with MS publicly was like this sugar-coated narrative of the disease. And I don't think that you have to be all doom and gloom about it, but I think that you can, you can tell what's not real. And I think there's like a, something really important about being open and honest about it. And that, that post that I wrote about honey, I peed the bed was all about adapting to using a catheter. And I'm just like refusing to allow myself to feel stigmatized by a tool that actually improves my life a lot. And I thought, you know, if I can help somebody else get to that same place, then that's, that's something that I need to do. I super admire that courage that it took you to do that. I wanted to touch on something that you said earlier. You've had MS for a long time. So what does that mean for you? How old were you and how did that impact just your reaction when knowing that you had it? Um, I mean, I was barely an adult just out of school. So it's really been my entire adult life that I've had MS. It's like hard to remember almost in some ways what life was like without this in my life. But MS has also evolved and changed so much over the years. And so, um, yeah, that's, um, sorry, I'm losing my train of thought. <laughs> hey, that happens to me yeah. all the time. I know. I'm sure many of our <laughs> listeners, right? So yeah, when you're younger and you're diagnosed at that early adulthood stage, it's like, the decision pattern that someone without MS would follow is different. Yeah, like my parents, I just left home. They immediately wanted me to move back. My mom had been a nurse. And so there was like, of course, my parents were like highly involved. My mom was with me when I was diagnosed. It was, you're getting a lot of advice from them. But even as a very young patient, I was very proactive and very involved in my care and very much wanting to know what the most aggressive best approach was. For me, it didn't take away my independence. I did not move back home with my parents. That would have been a major regression for me. Um, what, what it did do was take away choices. I think, you know, and when you're that age, your whole future is full of choices, right? It's like every year that we age, the, the choices we make narrow the paths we're going to choose, right? Like what school, what program, what job, who we marry, uh, if we have kids, like when, when we make all those choices as we go along, we're saying no to other possibilities and avenues. But, you know, when you're, when you're just in your early 20s and you have all the choices and all the options in the world available to you, I suddenly felt that like a whole whack of them were no longer available to me. And I, I don't want anyone newly diagnosed to hear this and think like that all, all these options are cut off from them. Things are much different now. My MS was aggressive um, and there weren't the same treatments available that there are now. So if I have any advice for the newly diagnosed, like get on a highly effective treatment early if you can. It's like the best predictor of a good prognosis. And that's my two cents. 
I know that things right now for you are really going well, looking up new things on the horizon. What's coming up new in your life? Uh, maybe a little TV show or something? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, uh, I've come a long way in the last, like when was 2017, the math, four years ago when I, I started to need uh, to use mobility aids like really on the regular. And I was super struggling to find positive, stylish examples of um, people who looked like me who were mobility users, like there were none. And that was, you know, it was hard enough coming to terms with what MS was doing to me physically, but the stigmatization that I felt, um, and I mean, just even being out in the world with a cane or whatever, invites people to ask you what's wrong with you. And I wasn't used to being seen like that. I, I Googled all kinds of crazy stuff, like, um, like, cool rollators and pimp my rollator and just like there was like nothing the first rollator I brought home I cried when I looked at it it was so ugly and so I realized that I needed to see other people who looked like me who were at the same life stage like young and using mobility aids even in 2017 there were none of those images on instagram they didn't exist and it's blowing my mind that now in 2021 like just a couple of years later tens of thousands of examples everywhere they're hard to miss and so i was an early proponent of the hashtag babes with mobility aids once i started to get comfortable with it once i found mobility aids that suited my aesthetic and i mean it led to a lot of opportunities my blog has done well and um i've a development deal with a production company to turn it into a show and just working on that you know it got the wheels turning of like what else are we missing culturally i ended up pitching another show that highlights the fashion and beauty potential of people with disabilities because this is a demographic that has been left out of media that we don't see represented in fashion and beauty. And even, you know, as woke as we are becoming culturally, there's like a big movement now for size inclusivity and all kinds of diversity, but disability is still left out. We are like forgotten. Uh, so I'm really, really excited that this show, and I've been like trying to get it happening for like four years. So I'm thrilled that we're finally going to get behind a camera. We'll be filming hopefully in September. COVID has, has delayed things a little bit, but I'm really excited. I think it's going to be I think it's going to be awesome. I'm really excited. This is really neat. I can't wait to watch it. Oh my goodness. This is going to be a real step forward. But I know that with all of this going on and MS being so unpredictable, I know you've been having some voice issues as well. I have not personally experienced that as a symptom. I hate to ask you to talk more, but what is that what like for you? Yeah, you know what? It's, it's chilling out a little bit now, but it it is, it's very stressful. It's gutting, actually. I used to be a singer. And so, you know, I put in my 10,000 hours. I trained really hard. I studied in France. I used to be a classical singer. And that wound down for me probably about six years ago when MS was starting to affect me more physically. Like singing is so, so physical. It requires balance and breath and stamina and core strength and like legs that work 
the way legs were intended to work. That was a really gutting experience for me to go through to sort of fade out of singing. However, that was when I started writing and I realized that the values that I associated with singing, so performing, being creative, putting something out there to share with the world, like that collaborative experience, connecting with other people, just finding out what it was about singing that brought me joy and realizing that I could meet those needs through writing was really exciting for me. And so writing filled that void for me. And this is a very long-winded way of using all of my vocal strength (laughs) to say that. So then last year I had a relapse that affected my speech and swallowing. It may be hard for the average person to tell that I am having vocal difficulties right now. And sometimes it sounds, sometimes it's hard to make a noise at all. And it's sort of like the way my legs fatigue, my voice will fatigue from time to time, but my vocal quality is not what it used to be. It gets sort of like a fry and not in like a Kardashian cool way. It's like, (laughs) it's not intentional, but it's exhausting to talk. And it's hard to, because I like never shut up, which you probably already have learned. And also I'm like, I don't know how my marriage works if I'm not talking. Cause my husband has like relied on the fact that I'm a big mouth for a very long time. So you guys even each other out is what you're saying. Yeah. But like what now, like there are nights when I'm like, babe, can you just like tell me a story or something? Because, and this is the other thing is like, I will know that I need to like be on vocal rest and just I can't, I can't stop. You talked about the the writing and I'm assuming you're talking about um, using the blog. So what has been the most beneficial piece to come out of that community for you? This just like constant reminder that other people are doing this and like, so I can too. Some days I'm the one that's kicking ass you know, and that will help somebody else. And some days someone else is kicking ass and I'm feeling down, but I can see that like, whatever I'm going through emotionally is temporary, feel it, cry it out, but realize that whatever happens so far, I've been able to handle it. And like stuff I never thought I'd be able to handle I definitely handle and seeing other people handle it too. It's just like, okay, they can do it. So can you, I feel it. I I definitely have seen and felt that throughout this, my own journey, you seem like a super um, funny person, energetic, right? You laugh a lot. So I'm assuming you like some stand up comedy. Could that be accurate? I actually did some stand up comedy. You did. I did. Um, Okay. Yeah. Well, it was sit down, not stand up, but um, (laughs) uh, yeah. And now like now there's pressure to actually be funny. Um, No, it's, um, (laughs) you know what, as part of my training as a singer, because I was really trying to make it in the opera world. And uh, so I took improv to sort of boost my acting chops. It feels like so cliche, like take an improv class, meet new people, but it was so much fun. My husband, who I 
who it, like it's so not his thing to do that kind of thing he did it with me and it was like so amazing to see this whole different side of him that I never knew existed he was way better at it than me which was like hard to swallow but he was quiet one no he he's <laughs> like he has no no shame like he will do anything so which I didn't know it was hilarious but anyway um so yeah that was through second city and then I ended up doing some stand-up there and I you know what I loved it so much I actually I would consider doing more except that I feel like it requires so much dedication and so much work and I just I don't have the time and energy with the other projects that I'm doing, but like stand-up is all writing. I mean, I mean, it's delivery too, but it's you, if you're a writer, you know, you've got a head start into stand-up, but I will say the stand-up scene in Toronto is, is alive and well, but it is not accessible at all. Like all the clubs are up a dangerous flight of stairs or down a dangerous flight of stairs. And it is very, very, it's not, accessible. And I, I feel like that is a big failure of a community that needs to work on diversity big time in terms of like women and other nationalities, and genders, and like, just fix your shit, stand up. Yeah. But I, I did enjoy it. I experienced that myself. I went to a show not too long ago and I turned around the corner because the guy said, you have to go over around the corner and up the stairs. So I turned around the corner and I can't explain to you the steep, short stairs that were in front of me. Yeah. And there was no, I didn't know, find another way to get up there. So. And can I just tell you the last show that I did, the host was like, so this was, a few years ago and I was using a cane, I did manage my way up the stairs. And this was actually at the second city and the second city is actually the only club in Toronto now that is accessible. They just did a reno and like kudos to them. But the host of this show was like, are you going to talk about why you're using a cane in your act? And I was like, no, it's nobody's business. I was like, really at that point, I wasn't out about my MS, but also I was like, I'm going to be funny in other ways. I'm not going to make fun of myself, which was something I really appreciated from Hannah Gadsby's yes. um, stand-up. Like, watch that if you haven't. But I was like, yes. I'm not going to yeah. do the punchline. So anyway, he was like, well, you better tell them or they're going to be distracted. And I was like, I don't owe them my health. I'm not telling them. So I didn't. And my set killed, I'm proud to say. But... Afterwards, he got back up on stage and said, if any of you rode the elevator up and enjoyed your ride on the elevator, you can thank Ardra for that. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, just like he couldn't let it go, right? Like he had to like make me the elephant in the room and like point out like she's different. It, it, that's his uncomfortableness, not anything to do with you, right? That's his insecurity. Yeah. But yeah, that self-deprivation, I'm not going to be able to say the word now. Deprivating humor is not, um, it's not helpful, right? It's not helpful for the person that is doing the comedy. And it's certainly not helpful for the audience to understand anything about the, the comedian. I think that's one thing that I've learned also about, you know, internalized ableism. And it's like, if I say something negative about myself, that's related to my disability, if I 
decide that using a walker makes me less attractive, then I'm deciding that for everyone and not just for me. And that's gross. You know, I wouldn't say that to anyone else. And I don't want to believe that about anyone else. And on the other hand, I feel like if I can say like, I look cute with this mobility aid, then I'm also saying that so do you. And I think that's, that's what we've been missing. That's what representation is all about. Yeah, you're empowering other people. And that is pretty outstanding, in my opinion. So I want to know, though, like I said earlier, you seem like a very happy person in general. But what brings you the most joy in your life? Well, I would say travel, for sure. I'm so, like, I feel like I need travel to be happy. And so that's been a big absence in these COVID times. But travel, writing, my dog and my husband and food. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) that's a pretty good list. I can just give you one. What do you do when you're traveling to prepare yourself to get ready for that travel? To make oh, sure you don't even want to know. Like I learned the language. I taught myself with Rosetta Stone to speak Italian and to speak Spanish. I, I do a lot of research. I really, I love to see the classical music scene of wherever I'm going, the food culture for sure, the art galleries. Like I'm really into all the aesthetic elements of travel. Wow, that's pretty incredible. A lot of people in our situation are nervous to travel just because they don't want anything, you know, negative to happen to them in terms of their health and they don't know what to do when they're away from home. So what kinds of things do you prepare for with your MS when you're traveling? I mean, I'm more nervous to like miss out on anything that life has to offer. So, you know, I will say that I... In this like gray area transition period where I don't really need a mobility aid all the time, the mistake that I made in traveling was pushing myself and um, not using my resources in the best way. So, you know, I can remember being in Paris and like sitting on the be- on a bench in the Marais crying because I'm like, if I can't be in ha- happy in Paris, where can I be happy? <laughs> Just like, because I'd used all my energy taking the subway instead of like springing for a cab. And like, you know, I, I always say now, like if you have to make your trip one day shorter to, you know, balance out the expense of, cutting the corners that, you know, allow you to take taxis instead of transit or save your steps or rent a mobility aid. You know, it's like years and years ago when I remember standing in a lineup in the airport in Rome and just like thinking, why can no one see that I'm about to keel over and die when like I should have been just using the wheelchair service, you know, it's like these hard lessons to learn. So yeah, there's, there's a lot like, Oh, I could talk for an hour about how to plan for a trip with MS. I went to Italy and I went to like four cities about three months before my first symptoms of MS. And I had no idea, right. That I was, that I had MS or that it was about to, you know, kind of change my life a bit, but I did everything that everyone else did, never thinking twice about it. And like you were saying, there's really no need to be non-carefree, just make some choices so that you can enjoy the experience more. 
I think though, a lot of that is about communicating and negotiating your needs before the trip, because, you know, it can be tempting to keep up with whoever you're traveling with. And it can be hard to communicate what you need when your illness is really invisible, right? Like it's really, I think it's really hard for people to understand that you can like be even jogging. And then there comes a point when like, you can't walk because you've used up all your reserve. Like, and that's, it's hard for the person experiencing it to understand, you know, it's like, I still don't always know my limits. I think we have to be kind with ourselves. It's like an ongoing negotiation for me, for sure. People go away for vacations to escape their problems. Like MS is coming with you. And, you know, if you have bladder issues or bowel issues, like there are a lot of symptoms that can be exacerbated by travel. You just have to be prepared for them. You can mitigate a lot of it and roll with the punches and like feel like it's worth it. Eiffel Tower or Empire State Building? Oh, I, I love them both, but Eiffel, like just by a hair. All right. Yeah. All right. And why? What What is the draw? Oh, I just, there's something about Paris that I've been drawn to. I'm from Montreal. I grew up speaking French. I've always been um, attracted to the language and the culture. I went to school in France. I would love to live there again for a period of time. I just, it like feels like home. It's so cliche. Everyone loves Paris, but I also, I, I do love New York also. I'm, a, I'm like, I am a city girl. Like if it's like, yeah, I thrive on city life. I love that though. That's excitement, right? I like to be busy. I, I mean, I don't like to sit still. I'm sitting still all the time and somehow busy at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Thriving Over Surviving podcast. If you would like to join our growing community of thrivers, there are a lot of ways to do so. Find us on Instagram at Thriving Over Surviving Podcast. The information provided on this show is for community building purposes and not meant to provide medical advice. 